welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. Today is the feast day of all feast days. It's why faithful Jews shockingly began gathering to worship, to celebrate the Eucharist, to feast on Sunday, not Saturday. For Saturday was the Sabbath day. And for the Jews, Sunday was actually Monday. And so they would have seen it like we did. Like, you know, you have the case of the Mondays. Like, because people say that, <laughs> don't they? I don't know. I've heard it. But it'd be like, oh man, it's Sunday. And yet they began gathering every Sunday. The early church, from the very beginning, set aside every Sunday as a feast day. Even in penitential seasons, like we just went through in Lent, you're not allowed to fast on Sunday. Because Sunday is a feast day. That day was so important because Sunday throughout the year was a mini Easter pointing to this day. Pointing to the true feast day of feast days. If there ever was a day of holy obligation, this day is the day. A day in which we must feast, we must celebrate, and we must rejoice. Since the dawn of the church, Christians have gathered this day, Easter Sunday, to worship, to celebrate, and to feast. In times of persecution and favor, they gathered to feast. In times of prosperity and in famine, they gathered this day to feast. In the throngs of war and in times of peace, they gathered to feast. On this day right now, millions displaced by war, displaced by famine, displaced by corruption of government and violence, will take what little they have and turn it into a feast and celebration. I remember reading about last year, months into the invasion of Russia into Ukraine. Millions had already fled the violence, many leaving behind loved ones to fight, not knowing if they were dead or alive, and reading that the surrounding regions had an issue because their Orthodox churches could not hold all the people because nonetheless, they gathered that Easter, worshiping, praying, And feasting. And I remember seeing images of that 
Easter last year. Buildings and homes in ruin and rubble. And the photographers capturing these images of those who remained. With people gathering in churches, and sometimes their church is not there, so they gathered in the streets, worshiping, embracing with a holy kiss, and feasting. So the question I want to ask is why? Why such a focus on this day? Why for roughly 2,000 years have Christians throughout the world set aside this day to celebrate and feast regardless of the current circumstances? I think the simple answer is first because this day we do not celebrate and feast because of of the fleeting present but because of what occurred. The physical resurrection of the Son of God, which changes everything. It changes the past, it changes the present, and it changes the future. It's because this day is a day in which we celebrate that wondrous moment in history in which our Lord shattered the shackles of death and rose victorious from the tomb. And this this day we celebrate that which everything hinges and the reality that changes everything. I want to take just a moment to unpack that statement as we prepare our hearts for the great feast. First, that it's the reality which, upon which everything hinges. <clears throat> Paul, to his letter from, in his, his letter to the church in Corinth, speaking about the physical resurrection of Christ and the resurrection that we will share in, states, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is futile. He says that you and I are still in our sins. And then he says, and we then are of all people most pitied. We're a pathetic bunch. But how and why? I mean, especially that we're still in our sins. I mean, because... Weren't our sins dealt with on the cross? Isn't justification and forgiveness of sins, isn't, isn't that a, a Good Friday theological topic? But no, he, elsewhere Paul says that he was raised for our justification. I think to understand how this works, why it is so central, why everything hinges on it, is to first recognize that this is a physical bodily resurrection that Paul is speaking of. For the first century Jew, um, resurrection is not a post-enlightenment, late 1800s, early 1900s intellect who says, oh, it was that Jesus welled up and his life sprung forth in their hearts and they called it resurrection. No, that wasn't a concept of the Jews. That's the concept of a German PhD. 
Or some say that they must have maybe saw his spirit, a vision, and said that he was raised. Just like today, you have accounts of people seeing beloved dead, dead loved ones and, and having that, that, those visions or pictures. And the Jews did too. Actually, if you read in Acts later on, when Peter was miraculously released from the prison and he went up to the home and was knocking and the servant girl came up and she said, heard Peter and said, Peter's here. And everybody's like, you're an idiot. No, he's dead. And then they're like, well, maybe, maybe it's his spirit. Had that concept, and in that concept, they would have never called it resurrection. And it is not resuscitation. Lazarus had died and was brought back, but nobody had claimed because of that that the resurrection had happened. No. I love how the Anglican bishop and New Testament scholar N.T. Wright simply states it. He says that resurrection for the first century Jew is going through death and then out the other side. And that matters. Because everything hinges on this resurrection of Christ on this day because through Jesus' death, we were told that he united himself to us, taking upon himself all of our sin and brokenness and uniting, then uniting us to him. But if he remained dead, then sin, evil, corruption, the darkness, and yes, death remains victorious. That the chains of sin and death still bound him and since we're united to him, they will bind us still as well. It's the well-known passage of Romans 6, where Paul says to the church in Rome, if united with him through his death, certain, we can be certain we will be united to him in resurrection. He joined himself to us, taking on our sin, that we may be joined to him in his resurrection life. If Christ is not raised, Paul's statement would have been a little bit different. I would imagine that that portion of Romans 6 would have read something like this. As Christ united himself to us in his death, we can be certain that we will also remain imprisoned by death, crushed under the weight of sin as he is. Happy Easter, ring the bells. <laughs> this day is the feast day of all feast days because everything hinges on what happened this day. And this is the beauty. In his letter to Corinth, he continues on from what I had read. After he says, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It is a feast day. It's a feast day of all feast days, not only because everything hinges on this day, but also because what this day celebrates changes everything. 
The danger is, is we have a tendency to take the, the resurrection of Christ, the gospel pro- proclamation, and to spiritualize, internalize, and individualize it. I think we do that because in our culture, we tend to internalize and individualize everything. I think of the older hymn made popular by the country western musician Alan Jackson. He lives. It says, he walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. There's actually truth in that because our certitude of the resurrection may come from feelings within our heart, but that is not a good Easter hymn. Possibly a good Pentecost hymn, but not a good Easter hymn. Because it doesn't matter what our heart feels or thinks We know he lives because there is an empty tomb and there ain't no body in it. See, unlike today for the first century Jews and for the early Christians, resurrection would not signify primarily internal feelings of hope, though it did provide great hope. Or some existential fortitude to stave off an ever impending despair. No, resurrection meant the old age was coming to a close, that existing powers and systems were going to be overthrown. A new age had dawned, that God's kingdom on earth would be on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven and earth united and intertwined, inseparable, that our thrones would be upended and God's reign restored in his creation. Resurrection meant for them that the righteous would be vindicated. That what was prophesied by Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah had come to pass. That those who have died will have new bodies and have life given to their dry bones. And this is why those in power, those who were benefiting from the current age, tried to squash this ridiculous doctrine. We know the Sadducees were vehement against the doctrine of resurrection, but it wasn't because of a theological dispute. It was because they were the ones who were the ones who were wealthy and in power within the age that was. It was a dangerous belief that they knew encouraged revolution. This was the foolish type of hope that emboldened the Maccabean martyrs in the revolt against the Suclid Empire 200 years prior. There are accounts of the Jewish revolutionaries being captured, being bound, facing execution. I love the one story in which this Jewish fighter was held and bound, and he stuck out his hands, stuck out his tongue, And said, I got these from heaven. And from him, I will get them back. Resurrection emboldened them. Resurrection meant 
that all of God's promises are being realized, that the curse from the fall is being reversed, that sickness and death is cast away, that famine, injustice, war, and suffering would be cast out of God's creation like Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. Resurrection meant that God had not abandoned his rebellious creatures. He had not left his good creation to be thrown onto a trash heap like a failed experiment. Resurrection meant new life, new creation, a new mode of existence. I love how the Anglican author C.S. Lewis, and I always introduce him as the Anglican author because sometimes he's the only Anglican people know. But C.S. Lewis (laughs) says this. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first fruit, first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has been opened. But as we read in our gospel reading today, resurrection was not expected in the manner in which it came. The first disciples came to the tomb fully expecting it to be occupied. And when it wasn't, they still didn't understand They didn't understand, even though Jesus had told them what to expect. Because they they had no concept of resurrection existing in the middle of history. They expected it to come at the end, as Martha said to Jesus. Yes, I know. He will be raised with the general resurrection. They had no framework to understand that resurrection and all it represented, all it fulfills, would be contained within a single man, the Messiah, the Son of God. Like Martha, they did not yet comprehend that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But upon beholding the empty tomb and the glorious resurrected body, a physical body that still bore his scars, yet not a resuscitated body, a body that had come out the other side, a glorified body. When they gazed and touched and ate, they realized that the future promise had been realized now in Christ our Lord. And we can see that it changed everything. Saturday became Sunday. Peasant cowards boldly spoke truth to power. Outcasts of society, those deemed unclean, welcomed in because the one cut off as unclean has risen, making all in him clean. 
The old facades of appearing to be righteous replaced with a gathering together in open confession of one's failings and sins because the vindication of the righteous has occurred through the vindication of the only one actually righteous. And because we are united with him, his righteousness is our own. Many faced martyrdom like the Maccabean revolutionaries of old, but now not holding hope of what might be, but certain hope because of what already occurred. And yet because the resurrection occurred not as they expected, not as a climax of violent upheaval against the powers that be, but through humble submission of the one more powerful than all, there was a willingness to revolt by way of humble offering of themselves. Speaking truth to power, but unwilling to fight back and showing grace to those who would seek their demise. The early Christians we read were mocked because they cared for the diseased that were not even their own. Risking sickness themselves because they knew that even though sickness still remained for a time, its final reversal had already been initiated. They cared for the physical needs of others. They gathered together in community. They broke bread. They created art. They taught other people's children. They did all of these things because they knew the tomb was empty. And because of that, they knew that God had not abandoned his good creation, but entered in and has begun redeeming it. So my brothers and sisters, this day we gather to worship to receive the sacrament that is a tangible physical reality that unites us to Christ through his body and blood given to us on the cross on Good Friday. But in that, we do so to celebrate and feast because he is risen. We feast in spite of the corruption of power we perceive because in his resurrection, all earthly power is thwarted. We feast in spite of death we have mourned or await because in his resurrection, he broke open the sealed door of death. We feast in spite of the prognosis we or loved ones have received because sickness is now but a momentary reality tied to a fleeting age. We feast in spite of the evil, injustice, war, and hell around us because though it remains, it no longer has the final word. We feast regardless of whether in this moment we personally feel close to God, feel his resurrection, feel particularly pious. Because Jesus has been raised on our behalf physically and historically, regardless of whether or not we believe it at the moment, he is still raised. We feast even if we entered this space focused not on the resurrection, but our own depravity. Because even though it's a feast day, we were screaming at the kids because they wouldn't listen. <laughs> Racked with guilt or bad thoughts. No, but we still feast. Because Jesus paid it all. And the resurrection signifies the vindication of the righteous. And because we have been united to him in a death like his, his righteousness now is our own. Today we celebrate and feast. Or celebrate the feast of all feasts. And we feast today because the tomb is empty. Christ 
is risen. We feast despite how we feel at the moment or what we think at the moment. Because this feast is not about us, but what has been granted to us in spite of us. We feast whether or not our current reality warrants a feast. Because today's feast is about how that which transcends our current moment broke in and grants certain hope regardless of what currently is. Together, today we gather, we worship, and we feast. Because the cross was born on our behalf, the tomb was empty for our liberation in life. And like the disciples in our gospel reading, even if it is still dark, we are running to look at the tomb to try to comprehend what has happened. And today we are reminded, even if we have forgotten, that it actually is empty. He is risen. So we rejoice and celebrate and feast this day alongside countless others throughout the world and throughout the centuries because we feast knowing that Alleluia, Alleluia, He is risen. Alleluia, Alleluia. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue.